Well, a tragic moment took a surprising turn for Ellis Houston and his Florida neighbors back in January. Houston's pet cat named Bart was apparently hit by a car, killed, and then buried in a shallow grave near the road where he was thought to have been killed. Houston told NBC affiliate WFLA that when he found Bart, the cat was cold, stiff, unconscious, nothing, zip. A few days later, however, on January 21st, Houston's neighbor said she found the two-year-old cat dirty and dehydrated, but wandering in her yard, very alive. That neighbor, Dusty Albrighton, told the Tampa Times that seeing the cat blew her away, but how much more it even stunned the owner, Ellis Houston. The cat had apparently clawed his way out of the grave, and it must, uh, according to Houston, it must have been a miracle or something. He said, I quote, uh, it must have been touched by the Lord. I can't explain it. The cat was buried. The cat was dead. And then... My neighbor brought it to my house a few days later. Bart the cat was treated for severe uh, injury of a broken jaw, had an eye removed as a result of his accident. accident. But now it is reported that he is a purring, happy cat. Now, while some are apparently calling Bart the cat the actual Bart the zombie cat... Houston has a different take on all this. He says, all I think is, is that it's a miracle. It just wasn't time for the cat to go. Well, clearly, Bart the cat encountered some version of overcoming the greatest challenge in all of life, and that is death itself. And the surprising part of that whole thing is that he was left purring. He was left happy despite the entire ordeal. Well, today in Psalm 16, we are encountering the prayer of a man who went through every ordeal imaginable right up to death and yet finds himself still happy about where he is with God. That man is King David. Now, you need to know about David that he fought in a great many battles, which, of course, is inherently dangerous as a soldier. He was chased by a psychotic king for a season of his life in King Saul, and he was betrayed by close friends and family who wanted him dead in order to usurp power from him. And yet, like Bart the cat, somehow it just wasn't David's time. In the midst of all this, David finds peace. He finds security and even joy in the midst of some unbelievable challenges. Psalm 16 reveals to us how, supreme, how God can really work in a life and bring security and joy even in the most intense challenges of life that everybody experiences from life throughout life, and even to death itself. So, how do we encounter the challenges of life and death itself with peace? This is the question we're answering today. 
Well, there are three ways that God leads us uh, to encounter the peace of God and resurrection peace as a resurrection God in our text today. And the first is this. We learn to trust in the God of the resurrection. We even taste uh, the taste of resurrection with the God of the resurrection. And finally, we, we learn to live with the God of the resurrection. Those are the three things we're going to look at briefly today. First, let's look at David's initial response to the threat of death in his life in verse 1 in our text. It says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Notice how he says this, this language of preserving. Uh, David clearly feels some kind of threat in life. He uses this word to describe, usually when this word is used in the Psalms and when David uses it, it usually means he is uh, feeling uh, afraid uh, of something imminent in his life. Now, David, in, in other texts and psalms, when he sings or prays to God, he, he usually prays with a bit of pathos. That is, uh, he laments the challenges that he's facing. Those prayers, as we talked about in the past as a congregation, are prayers of disorientation. That sometimes when you're in life moving right along, things happen and you feel disoriented and find yourself longing to be saved. David prays that way in many of his prayers. And certainly we would say those prayers of disorientation, saying ouch with God, actually presupposes uh, this prayer. However, Psalm 16 takes a different tack. It is a prayer of reorientation. David really is getting at where he is with God after working through a season of disorientation with challenges in his life. And he says, he tells us why in our text. He says, for I take refuge in you. Preserve me, for I take refuge in you. Now the Hebrew word here for, uh, for uh, taking refuge is actually trust. I wish uh, the... the uh, ESV would have really translated that way. It's a language of confidence, of resting in, might I say, hope, looking forward to what God can do in his life. And, and God, he goes on to say even further that you are my Lord. No good happens apart from you. Now, here is the first way to encountering the peace of God and the peace even of the resurrection in the midst of some serious challenges in life. And that is you trust the Lord. You trust the Lord. And not just any Lord. You trust a living Lord. A living God. Psalm 118 says it this way. It says, It is better to trust the Lord than to trust in men. And we might even say, even to trust yourself. Christianity at its heart believes in a living God, not a dead God. Our God is a God who hears our prayers. He wants to hear our prayers. Our God is a God who speaks and who chooses to speak through this book called the Bible. Our God is a God who acts, who actively intervenes in our lives and saves us, not only from circumstances, but ultimately even from our own brokenness he saves us from ourselves. David knew this. And he had experienced God's salvation in his life in such a way that he was saying, I 
trust you to get me through this yet again. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, a great way to say it is we are called to trust in a living God who can actually take everything and bring salvation and redemption out of it in ways that we can't even predict. Take, for example, the cross. We've been singing about it all morning. Who would have thunk back in the Apostles' Day in the first century Judea with all the activity in the Roman Empire and even the Jewish kingdom that was there that this guy would rise up and become a powerful teacher and leader, be crucified, and everybody, especially those threatened by him, would say, I'm glad we don't have to worry about him anymore. And he raises from the dead. You see, too many times when we go through trials in life, we're trying to anticipate the outcome and even tell God how to bring the outcome when all he's asking us to do is to trust him. To trust him in his extraordinary ways. David shifts then from this call to trust and this affirmation of his trust in God into a series of blessings that he talks about in our text in verses 3 through 8. And in 3 through 8, he gives us Three distinct tastes that occur whenever you encounter the God of the resurrection. I might even tell you there are tastes of the resurrection as as David explains them in our text today. So what are these three tastes of the resurrection? Well, the first taste comes in verses 3 and 4. And this is what David says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. And then he shifts in this contrast and says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Now David's got all of life coming at him hard. So fast and sometimes so painfully that he noticed that God gave him a taste of the resurrection in something that we often take for granted. And that is godly community. God gave the saints to David to support and encourage him in the midst of some serious challenges, even the threat of death in his life. This, however, is a contrast to idolaters. And presumably, you should know, the idolaters he's talking about here are those Israelites who followed after other gods in their challenges. In other words... When they were faced with challenge and even the threat of death in their fear, they cling to the closest thing they could get their hands on, an idol, which is usually, you should know in Scripture, almost always a good thing. Now, of course, in that day, in David's day, there were little little physical idols, but idolatry takes all kinds of forms, not just of the strange but even of good things. And the idea behind idolatry is this, is that you make a good thing an ultimate thing. You make a good thing your source of life. David said those who actually pursue that life of finding life uh, in an idol end up in sorrow. They end up offering their, uh, their blood, their soul, to a dead God because they're afraid. David, however, is rejoicing that he is surrounded by a community who emboldens him, who encourages him to stay in the fight, 
Now, what's that got to do with us today? Well, when you face challenges, do you isolate? Do you isolate and go to a place by yourself? Go the other direction. And with Christ in particular, go the other direction to his people. When you live in sorrow and fear, run to the people he's put in your life who point you to him. There's a story of a man who was uh, walking down a road one day. And the story goes that as he was walking down the road, he fell into this huge hole in the road. A hole so big that it was so steep and so deep that he could not get out of the hole. So as he was in the hole, he was looking up out of the hole and he could see people walking by and he would yell at them, Hey, would you please help me get out of this hole? One guy comes by, looks down, and he throws money into the hole. Here you go. Hopefully this will help you. Another guy comes by a few minutes later and says, Please help me out of the hole. A guy says, hey, I tell you what, I'll pray for you. And he sits there and piously prays for him and then leaves. Well, this guy's getting pretty desperate because he's stuck in the hole. And finally, another guy comes by and he says, hey, can you get me out of this hole? And the guy jumps down in the hole with him. And And the guy who was originally in the hole looks at him and says, what are you doing? I was stuck in this hole and now we're both down here stuck in this hole together. But the guy who jumped in with him said this, you know what? I've actually been in this hole before and I know how to get out and I'm going to show you. One of the struggles that we often have is that we don't believe someone will jump in the hole with us. Well, that's who Jesus, the resurrected Christ is, is the one who comes into our world and jumps in the hole of our darkness with us to rescue us. To get us out from what we cannot do ourselves. The gospel says that we can have community and even community with Christ. What's the second taste of resurrection life that you find in this text? Well, not only do you find community in the midst, does David find community in the midst of this, but in verses 5 and 6, he says something interesting about his life. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. Here, uh, David starts talking about in this text, you hold my lot. Lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. You know what that's talking about, right? It's talking about land. It's talking about a place of permanence, a home. It's the impulse that a lot of us in this room have that we move out to Union County or we buy a home in a place that we want to call our own. David felt that in his time. The blessings that God had provided into his life, he felt that God was providing a taste of home. But you ought to know that that taste of home is not born of what he owned. It came out of the first verse in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Notice he doesn't say here that my kingship, my career is my cup or provider. He doesn't say that my lifestyle is my portion. The Lord is. The Lord is the end game for everything. 
And you know what's happened here is that David has so experienced his challenges in life and has even lost so much in his life. You know, David lost everything multiple times in his life that he came to the end of himself and everything and realized he had the Lord and he was satisfied. He had the Lord and he was satisfied. Your portion in life is the most important and valued thing in your entire life. What do you value most? What is it? If, and the key thing to know what that is, is if someone took it away from you, how would you respond? When you face challenges, whatever you find your portion in, that's what you put your hope in. But the beauty of what David is saying here is this, that only when you lose everything do you realize how much you have in Christ. Only when you lose it all do you realize how much you need Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting I want that of you, for you and your life. I'm not suggesting that everyone should go to poverty and lose it all. What I am suggesting is that real faith Real authentic hope is willing to do that exercise in your heart and in your mind and your life with the Lord of letting go, even though you still have, of being willing to give up because you find your satisfaction and your treasure in God himself as your portion. Earlier this year, Isa Jessica, I hope I got that right, of southwest Poland was put into surgery to have a cancerous growth removed from her brain. Jessica was 19 years old. The interesting thing about this surgery experience for Jessica was that halfway through the brain surgery procedure, with her brain exposed and the doctors working on it, she woke up. She woke up. And her first question to the doctors as she kind of got her, uh, um, uh, woke up was this, how's it going? The doctors, you know, a little shocked at what was going on, said, well, um, it's going okay. And for the next few hours as they were working on her, they proceeded to have a conversation with Isa Jessica where she talked about the surgery openly with them and apparently started talking about cats. Maybe even Bart the zombie cat. Isa Jessica was awake during surgery. And that's a little bit like the third taste of the resurrection that goes into our text here in verse 7. Look at this. It says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right, my right hand, I shall not be shaken. When we face challenges in life of any measure, and ultimately even death itself, we have a tendency to run and hide and be distracted and shut the world out with la, 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 don't want to think about it. But what happens is that God in every challenge is working in our lives to teach us to be still and to listen. And that, my friends, is a lot like brain surgery 
while you are awake. God instructs us, particularly with his law and his gospel, with his word. He speaks into our lives. He directs us on the way we should go. And he tells us the bigger story. That's the wonder of Christianity is that in every measure of suffering we all go through, even as David does, the gospel shows us there's something bigger going on here. Bigger than me, bigger than the circumstance, a story is going somewhere that I am a part of in Christ. The wonder of the gospel is that God redeems and saves everything. Nothing is left to go to waste. It is all woven together, every circumstance, for God's glory in His way. What is God teaching you in your challenge today? It might be a small, mild challenge. It might be severe. It might even be the taste of death. Whatever the case, how is God meeting you in that? Is he giving you a new way of handling life? A renewed call to follow him in discipleship? You know what's interesting about these three tastes of the resurrection that I just gave you in verses 3 through 8 is all of them really are spiritual blessings. Maybe some uh, with the lines in pleasant places might be some material blessings. But in the end, they really are pointing to the larger, greater point of encountering the God of the universe, the God of the resurrection in the midst of any challenge. They are relational tastes of God. And they embolden David's hope in the midst of those challenges. And that's the key. To enjoy spiritual community. To enjoy spiritual instruction from God's word. To enjoy God's spirit himself. You have to be in a living relationship with the God of the universe. You have to engage him personally. In verse 2, David says, uh, plainly, I say to you, you are my Lord. (laughs) That's David's way of saying, you belong to me. I belong to you. We're connected in relationship. I follow you. You love me. That's what he's saying in this text. And so when we face challenges, we're called to trust in the Lord, in all kinds of circumstances. And God sneaks in these blessings that we often don't expect, these tastes of resurrection life that reorient us to Him more and more. Where are you with God today? I mean, really. Does He seem far? Do you feel like you're moving away from Him or towards Him? Whatever the case Trust in the Christ who has lived and died for you. Trust in the Christ who has loved you when all other gods will run from you because you're not performing good enough. Trust in the Christ who performed everything you needed for salvation and life forever. David had that trust. And he is so confident and so hopeful in the midst of his dangerous challenges that he has some implications for how we lead. And this gets to us today. What difference does this all make for us? 
in living today. Well, in the midst of your challenges, God will bring hope, real hope, substantive hope that helps us to reorient towards eternal life. And the first uh, hope comes out of verse 9. David's prayer of reorientation says this, Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure. There it is. David's happy. I mean, he's got all this stuff coming to him. And, and don't, I don't doubt that prior to this prayer, he's prayed all, those pra- prayed all those prayers of lament. Like, where are you, God? And what's going on, God? And would you please show up, God? But at this point, God has met him in some very real way. God has loved him in some practical way. And therefore, he's praying with joy that God has met him in his time. And not only that, he says, my flesh dwells secure. You know what that means? He says, I'm not afraid to die. Facing challenges, and again, in his case, some radical stuff like death itself. He's saying, I'm not afraid to die. And how can he say that? How can he hope like that? Well, verse 10 tells us why. Verse 10 says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see Corruption, decay is another way to say it. Two reasons here. Why David can say with confidence, I'm not afraid to die. I can be happy even into death and past death. And the first reason comes in, in, verse, in the first part of verse 10, which says that uh, God won't leave his soul in Sheol. What that means is God will, will put his soul in heaven in the presence of God. Sheol, just so you know, is not hell as some assume. Sheol is the place of death where the body goes in the ground. Christian theology has something to say about death that other religions in the world are really unclear on. What we say is that at death, our body and our souls separate. The body goes to the ground, our souls go to heaven, into the presence of God. In an intermediate state, we just don't understand what it is. 2 Corinthians 5 describes this as being absent from the body and present with the Lord. And so what we believe as Christians is that there is life after death. Now, in an increasingly pluralistic and atheistic society like we live in, someone would say, how can you be so sure? I mean, really. How can you be sure? I mean, this is just the Bible, and there's a lot of stories in here. I mean, how can you really trust it and things like that? Well, we believe Scripture affirms that there's life after death and gives plenty of practical examples about it. And David gives us another reason in verse 10. He says this, For you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now, here's the big question of the day. Who is David talking about? Your holy one. Is he talking about himself? Well, there's a problem with that. David's body actually ended up in a grave decaying. Long after he wrote this psalm. The answer comes in Acts chapter 2. Where the apostle Peter preaches to thousands of Jewish people at Pentecost... And he quotes this exact verse. And when he quotes it, he fingers Jesus. 
Jesus Christ as the one, the Holy One, who wouldn't see corruption. You see, it's Jesus, according to Peter, because David's body saw decay in the tomb. But God also promised David that there would be an eternal king on the throne. And that that king would live forever. That person was Jesus who died, but was resurrected from the dead. In other words, David in this text is predicting Christ's death a thousand years before it happened as a key reason why he was happy. Why he was happy in the faces of his challenges to death. Why is he happy? Well, if God can raise someone from death, what is there to be afraid of? If God can overcome the one final thing that we're afraid of in life, what do we need to be afraid of except Him who actually holds our life and death in His hands? Here's the application of that for us. The next time you're afraid in life about something, be it your finances or what people think of you, the next time you think, I don't know about my future, I'm not sure about where I'm going in life, listen to the rhythm of your heart. You know what you're actually afraid of, right? It's death. It may not be physical death. But it may be financial death, relational death, some kind of thing where you lose it all. But the ironic key here is David saying, I'm not afraid to die because there's one who's going to overcome death. And it's Christ himself who does it. You see, resurrection hope is born of our hope in the one who came back from the dead, Jesus Christ. We look to him and not ourselves to overcome the deepest challenges of life. Now, I know that amidst us would be skeptics who have their concerns. How can you say this? Again, the Bible is full of a lot of stories. I don't know whether to believe them or not. Well, there's three things I would tell you today to help you consider that Christ's resurrection was for real. First, it, it, was, it was this, uh, his death was a fatal death. Unlike Bart the cat, Jesus was killed for good by professional soldiers on a Roman cross. He, stayed, he was dead and he stayed dead and they made sure of it. That was key to them uh, or they would have been penalized themselves for not carrying out their job. Second truth, there was an empty tomb. No one, not even Christ's enemies uh, in the Jews and Gentiles ever produced a body when it would have benefited them greatly in order to dispute the resurrection and Christianity spread like wildfire all over Judea, Jerusalem, even to the ends of the world. Third, there were 500 witnesses who, as Paul describes, would have been willing to tell you that they saw Jesus alive after the, the crucifixion. In other words, it, it's like Scripture dares us to believe that Jesus is really alive. And I'll tell you, when you still have are thinking, I don't know, this sounds like those myths and legends that you find in the Greeks and the Romans... 
Here's what I tell you is very different. When you read the gospel narratives of uh, the resurrection, you'll find like Ernesto read earlier that there are details. And myth does not have details. Remember the details of what Ernie read earlier? It said in John 20 that when the uh, disciples of Peter and John got to the grave, they found linen cloths there, folded up. Even the one that went on Jesus' head. Myths don't tell details like this. It has all the marks of history. And if this is history, if Jesus is really alive, as we are saying today and as David predicted a thousand years prior to Christ, everything changes. We can have hope. Somebody's made it to the other side, come back, and he has a new body and says, I have eternal life waiting for you because I am the resurrection and the life. The beauty of this truth is really simple for us. If we rest in this hope, We can be blessed. And there are three simple blessings, real quickly, that David describes in our text that come out of this truth that Christ is alive. He says in verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's saying, I can know the way to eternal life and the path to take it there. In a world with all kinds of ideas of paths you can take. Hey, take this path. No, take this path. No, take this path. Just watch Oprah. There is one path. Following the Christ all the way to eternal life and a resurrection for eternity. He says... There is joy in your presence. In the power of the Holy Spirit, with a resurrected Christ, you and I can taste joy now. Not just then, but somehow in the midst of the pain. Oh, there's tears, no question. But also joy. And then this wonderful promise, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh my goodness, are we not looking for pleasure in this life? Relief from our pain. What scripture says is that real pleasure is found in the God who can give you relief and comfort from the inside out. Who starts inside of you with Jesus taming the soul. And one day when Jesus comes back, he'll take care of the outside part too. With a new heavens and a new earth. With him forever. This is profound stuff of hope and promise that for many of us seems like pie in the sky in the midst of our challenges. But the place you have to start is with a resurrected Christ. If he really is alive and all the evidence says he is, it changes everything about now and for eternity. This was a truth that was lost on me at points when I was a kid. Many of you know I did not grow up in a Christian church. I didn't go to church growing up. And when I would hear stories about the Gospels or stories about the Bible, I'd say, oh, there's just myths just like those Greek gods and those Roman gods. I used to think that. 
till one day I heard the gospel. Uh, my family and I showed up at a church. We had never went to church, but we showed up because of a Boy Scout Sunday. I was there as assistant senior patrol leader in my Boy Scout uniform, just sitting there going, okay, we got to do church again. And sitting there, I heard this guy talk about Jesus dying for my sin, which, by the way, made all kinds of sense as to why my life, my family, so much was chaos. Sin is the most empirically verifiable truth of Scripture in all of life. But then he talked about Christ loving me and dying for me. And I so was compelled that I went back and I listened. But I had these questions in the months that followed. I had these questions until one day I showed up at church and... The pastor was talking about Easter and the resurrection. And it hit me for the first time in my life that Easter was all about the resurrection. I didn't know that. Then I had a bunch of questions. Jesus raised from the dead? How can that be? That doesn't make sense. Can somebody be raised from the dead? And then I looked at the evidence. And as an engineering mind, I'm hyper-analytical. <laughs> and I found the evidence was sound. It sounded like history. It felt like history. It was history. I received Christ for the first time late one spring in 1982. And it changed my life forever. The wonder of the resurrection is it will change your life. Whether you're considering Christ for the first time or whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, that same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can raise your soul again in renewal. Where are you today with God? There's a resurrection that gives hope to people who are challenged in life and can celebrate because God is alive and right there with them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are alive, and that we can celebrate Easter today because, Jesus, you're also engaging us. I pray today for all of us who are here, including myself, that you would meet us where we are on this Easter Sunday and you would awaken our hearts to how big and glorious you really are as a living Lord and how you've come to give us joy and peace and life not in the things of this world which we keep trying to find life in, but in yourself. Because there are pleasures at your right hand. There, there is joy with the one who is truly alive after death. Praise you, Lord Jesus, for giving us this time to dwell in the resurrection. It changes everything. In Christ's name we pray.